Welcome to Issue Spot, the policy podcast of the Boston Bar Association. I'm Mike Abitzer, the BBA's Director of Government Relations, and I'm joined today by Suffolk University Professor Kenneth Cosgrove, and we've asked the professor to join us because of his expertise in uh, American politics and his experience in Congress in particular. And Professor, I wanted to start by asking, there's been a lot of discussion in the news recently about the president's first federal budget, but as I understand it, this is only the beginning of a longer process. So could you walk us through what we should expect to happen next? Sure, Mike. It's great to be with you and your listeners today. First of all, what happens next is that you will see a series of hearings about a budget resolution that will come up to authorize the budgetary process to begin, and that will really start in May. The Americans have the idea that the president is something like the general manager of the government. This isn't quite true. The president has a good bully pulpit, as Theodore Roosevelt put it on the other hand. A lot of the power in this area rests with the House of Representatives specifically, but also the Senate, and within that, within the committees and the subcommittees. So you said these hearings uh, should be starting in May. What, what should we expect to come out of them? What kind of power do the committees have at that point? Quite a lot, because... One of the things that happens is that these hearings oftentimes take place at levels that people don't pay that much attention to. There's a lot of latitude for what goes on in these things. And you have to remember with federal budgeting, we don't start with zero. We start with the prior year's appropriations, the Office of Management and Budget, which is an executive branch agency, goes off about six to eight months before the announcement of the president's budget and polls the agencies about what their budgetary needs would be for next year. So Donald Trump came into a situation where a lot of the legwork for this had already been done. The real impact of the Trump budgets won't necessarily be until next year, because at that point, then all of a sudden, they're in charge of the entire process. Oftentimes, presidents will complain after they get elected, saying, I don't get to put a first budget in until really the second year because of this. So what you'll see is the normal stuff. There'll be hearings where you'll bring up people. Agencies will show up. There'll be interest groups that participate. And this is a good place for your listeners to make, make their voices heard. And then at that point, each one of these committees issues a report. Each one of the reports includes things like amendments and recommendations, and those go to the floor together. So this is a long, involved process, which is why in watching this, you would caution people to think, just because the president asks for things doesn't mean they're going to get it. There are other things that go on in Congress, such as what congressional constituents want, what relationships Congress people have with interest groups and agencies, and also what can you demonstrate to the people in your district and say, this is what I've done for you. It's a two-year electoral cycle. It's not the case that you're tied to Donald Trump. And, and in talking about things like Trump requests, one of the things I would encourage people to look at is what percentage of the vote did he get in an individual congressional district? The more of it there is, the more strength he's got with that member. The less there is, the less strength there is with that member. And the other thing I would suggest is who occupies the positions of seniority matter a lot. And one of the ways that we can think about Donald Trump is a, is a guy who's trying to change the Republican Party. Well, there are a lot of people in the Republican Party who don't want to change the Republican Party. Maybe he doesn't have that much influence with them. So that's a key way to watch it. And the big thing for your members is not to think that there's any determined outcome here. There isn't. Now, you mentioned there uh, are opportunities for uh, regular citizens to get involved in the process by contacting their representatives. One issue that we at the Boston Bar Association are especially concerned about is the proposal to zero out funding for the Legal Services Corporation, or LSC. What do you recommend that uh, members do if they uh, want to express their, their particular interest in that or any other issue to their representatives? Uh, be present, be polite, be firm, be clear. 
the, the old country western thing must be present to win actually applies here. It helps to make your voice heard. And one of the ways you do it, physically show up at a town hall meeting. Some members have office hours. Go. And then if you go, try not to be some of the people you've seen on television. Have a clear set of points. Be firm. Don't be emotionally engaged. And try to let them explain why they want to do what they want to do, and they will listen to you. I think one of the things that's important for you to show here is how does this benefit people in the congressional district? Can you provide stories to people that say your constituents have actually benefited from this and here's how? Because if you can do that, then that makes that vote much easier because as members of Congress, the vote they're looking for is the vote they can explain. Otherwise, the other thing that you should do is try to network with people in other places and prod them, particularly people in swing districts. A swing district is a district that sometimes votes Republican, sometimes votes Democratic. You live next to one of these. The first district in New Hampshire is a swing district. So one of the things that you might want to do is, is have, if you know people up in that district or in other swing districts across the country, contact them. The other thing that would encourage, I would encourage you to just have your bar association become active with Congress people. If you show up with people who are your constituents, or you are the constituents of, such as their senators and Congress people that listen to you. I'm glad you mentioned that because um, I, I did want to mention that we have um, a delegation that has historically been very supportive of LSC funding in particular and, and many of our other uh, priorities as a bar association as well. I, I didn't want people to think that just because our delegation is, is supportive that there's no more work that can be done on our end. They need your help to make the argument to people in other places for why it is they should keep this. And one of the things I would suggest is if you can humanize this with people in your district who've actually benefited from these programs who live there, those people are the, are the best advocates you can ever have because they speak very authentically. And it's one of those things where you have to make the affirmative argument and give the Congress people the information they need to counteract the executive branch. And Congress has a little bit of this in the Congressional Research Service. On the other hand, for most members of Congress, there's nothing better than constituent testimony. There is nothing better than somebody from their district saying, I care about this, I have benefited from this, you should vote for it. And the more of that you do, the more of the affirmative argument you can make. Because what the, I would think what the executive branch will do is get up and make some broad statement about the role of government and philosophical values. And in a counter case, you could say that the role of government here is it provides a due process of law or something similar. But that's the biggest piece of it, really, is to provide people with things that they can see and say, this is why I want to do this. I would also suggest some social media for this would be good. If you can generate buzz, particularly about an individual issue, where you can show people that this matters and there are people who benefit from it, that's good. Because the legal services corporate, I don't know what that is. It's some anonymous thing. On the other hand, occasionally our justice system does make horrendous mistakes, and it's good if you can sort of help people with that. And if you can show people that, it's helpful. Yeah, LSC funds uh, four different legal services providers in, in the state of Massachusetts. I imagine we, we must have some members who have um, had clients, at the very least, who have had the benefit of, of representation that they wouldn't have otherwise had if not for that funding. And, and I also think, Mike, it's good to make values arguments in, in, in these things. They are values-based arguments. And then the question here isn't just about what it costs, it's about what is the just and right thing for governance to do. And in a lot of ways, these arguments are almost always about values. If you look at a lot of the fights in the federal budget, it's not really about budgets, it's about which values get represented and also who benefits and who pays. So that would be the other way to show this, is just show people there are real benefits in your community for this. We, we put out a report a couple of years ago that um, hit on both those points, the, the values point and the budget point, by demonstrating both the strain on the system from uh, pro se litigants who can't get representation from legal services providers because of the lack of funding, 
and also made the point that there is a positive return on investment from state investment in uh, legal, legal services funding from avoiding things like having to pay for shelter costs or health care for domestic violence victims. And those things are useful arguments to make because in the end you make an argument this, this, these things are cost effective and the other, they also speak about our values and who we are and who we want to be. And th I think those things are useful for members of Congress to hear. Now, we've probably been somewhat spoiled um, in recent history in Massachusetts from uh, having very powerful members in the delegation. Right now, the, the whole delegation is in the minority. Uh, what, what kind of powers do they, do they still have um, individually and, and collectively in I would in pay a lot of attention to your senators. Two things people need to know about the Senate in, in terms of any legislative process, particularly the budget process, is budget bills aren't filibusterable, but what they are is they're oftentimes done through these large packages called omnibus legislation. So what you could encourage your senators to do is put very favorable amendments into the package that have enough support to pass, and if they get into that, then all of a sudden you create a deadlock with the House of Representatives, which takes you to the legislative equivalent of overtime called the conference committee, and then you're writing out your differences. It's one way that the Senate amending rules and the, and the Senate um, budget process is more favorable than the House because the minority in the House has a very difficult time. The majority basically runs everything. Majority controls the committees, majority controls the agenda, majority controls subpoena power. The Senate's a little bit different because of the filibuster, and it doesn't have a rule that outlaws amendments that have nothing to do with the bill. The Senate allows this. And so in these omnibus pieces of legislation, all you have to do is find the right vehicle with a, with a group of people who want to amend things. They call this Christmas tree. All you have to do is Christmas tree the bill, and at that point, you might be able to get some things that way. Interesting things pass in these omnibus pieces of legislation, and sometimes people aren't aware that they did pass. Just because um, budget time in Congress is a lot like college students around final examinations. They're trying to cram to get it all in because there's a hard deadline. If you miss by October 1st, that's a big problem. And more and more, they've missed by October 1st. The federal fiscal year runs from October 1 to September 30. You have to have a budget in place by September 30th. So all of the legwork with these 12 subcommittees and the 12 appropriations bills that have to pass after the budget resolution that we just talked about, all that takes place between May and September 30th. It's a busy time. And we don't agree on much in this country right now. There's a lot of contention. And so because of that, either you end up with a government shutdown, a continuing resolution, or what you'll end up with is a budget that passes adequately with the promise to do another one, so what's called a supplemental. Later in the year, that can happen. So it is one of those things that even though it will be summer and people might be away, this is a key time because this is when these committees do their work. And by the time the package gets to the floor, oftentimes it's either way too late or you need a senator to slip something into the bill so that you can get to a conference committee and that, that's going to just extend the process and then you negotiate, which then means you have to show that there's support for what you want. But I also think this delegation is full of people that are, understand their constituents, they advocate well, and, and they're smart and articulate and they're not afraid to speak up. Not every congressional delegation is quite as skilled as this one, and I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you. Like, it's true, it's a very good delegation, you have two very good senators. They're highly articulate. One of them, at least one of them, is a national figure on everything. The other one's a national figure on technology. So those are nice assets to have. So what do you see happening next after the the committees do their work? Do, do you think this will get done by the September thirtieth deadline? Uh, uh, you you would hope if you were the Republican Party, you want to do this. 
I, I think one of the things that you now have to do is you're empowered to deliver in a way that you haven't been empowered to deliver in a really, really long time. You have to show people you can govern. And in their initial foray into this, it turned out they showed people quite the opposite of that, thank you very much. They really couldn't govern because if you look, it seemed like you had an executive branch that misunderestimated, as George W. Bush used to say, how hard it was going to be to pass legislation. You had a speaker who had to protect his members who did it and, and said, we're not going to make our members take a bad vote. And all the while, while that was going on, people were focused on that drama. There was the Senate where the Republican caucus was telling the White House and the House Republican caucus that what you guys are proposing will not sell here. So it's hard to say. I mean, in a lot of ways, this could either be the politics that the president makes or you get into the institutional infighting between the House and the Senate, which is always there. It's structurally, it's structurally designed for this. People assume that the House and the Senate are partners. Not necessarily. They're more, like, they're more like rivals, even when the same party controls both of them. And that's because of the orientation. The senators are more national in, in scope, and, and the House members are more local in scope. And in, in the aftermath of the health care issue, watching that, you can make an argument that Paul Ryan actually did a very good job for his members. He wouldn't let them walk off a cliff and make a vote that was bad for them. And that's fundamentally, as the leader of their party, that's his responsibility. So a lot of it gets into... How much has the White House learned here? And also, what deals are they willing to make? If they're looking at the idea that the president is somehow the general manager of the company, it doesn't really work like that. The president, in a lot of ways, is the suggester and the lobbyist in chief. Congress has most of the power. The budget has to start in the House of Representatives by Constitution. That, that's in there. It's by law. You have to start there. And then after that, the president has no say in what the rules of the Senate are. The Senate makes that. I think like a lot of things here, I think what you've seen is the president take an extreme negotiating position to get to whatever middle he has in mind. I think the, the problem that he's got is that as the figure who's trying to disrupt both parties, it's not clear he's got anybody really in either one of those houses that's actually on his side. They have their own interests. So let, let's say they do wrap up a budget uh, by their deadline. Hallelujah. <laughs> what, in historical terms, how closely does that budget typically resemble what first comes out of the White House? It changes earlier? a lot. It changes a lot because you have 435 people in the House who are individually elected. You have 100 people in the Senate who are individually elected. And if you go back to who they represent and what they voted for in the presidential election, not all those people are beholden to Donald Trump. In fact, very few of them are. It will generally change a lot. And then it gets into what does Mr. Trump do to bring people along? Or do you want to try to assert the powers of the presidency? Because one of the things you can make an argument against Barack Obama as president was that he actually didn't do enough to bring people along and became heavily dependent on executive orders instead of legislation. Whereas if you look at Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton was the master at bringing people along, would make deals with people. Unfortunately, some of these deals required very public votes, which the other party in Congress was happy to make fun of the people having to make these votes, but he would make deals with people. So what does, what does the White House do? How do they approach Congress? Because if, if they do what they did last week, they say, well, you have to vote for this bill. Well, really, you don't. Congress could always send the president a continuing resolution. If the president vetoed the continuing resolution, that's not on the Congress. That's on the president. They've done that a lot. Or in a government shutdown, the, the optics of government shutdowns are terrible because it's not actually a full shutdown. It's a shutdown of things like the Washington Monument and the National Zoo and, and veterans checks and student, and student loan payments, really bad optics. They, even though this has happened a few times, Nobody really likes it. It's just one of the ways that you can sort of make people go along. And then the other thing it gets into is what other devices did they put into this budget? In recent years, the U.S. government has used a lot of what we could colloquially call stop me before I spend again devices. And an example you might, your members might have heard a lot about is sequestration. 
in, in any kind of budget cap agreement with sequestration, it means this. Basically, they set a number, and anything over that number, the money just disappears. In the end, we've been so unable to deal with our budgetary problems that essentially what we did was put the government in handcuffs. It's happened several times. Do they do something like that? Or otherwise, do you, do you just say, well, debts don't matter that much? I know in the reconciliation process, they want to use for tax cuts now, one of the things that you have to show is no negative impact on the debt over 10 years. So that's going to get into our friend Rosie's scenario. And what, one of the things that people should keep in mind here is there's a lot of tension between these branches in terms of the way their numbers work. So in this case, what will probably happen is the Office of Management and Budget, the presidential agency, will come up with economic projections that show, well, it's 10 years from now, the economy is going to grow well, the offset will grow way out of it, and Congress will come up with, through the Congressional Budget Office, we'll score this more accurately and differently. So, Professor, if, uh, if I understand you, it, it sounds like the message for not just our members, but anybody who's interested in um, different issues that are uh, addressed by the federal budget is to uh, be aware that the, the, the budget that just came out of the White House uh, recently is just a proposal, that it has a long way to go, follow the action in both the House and the Senate from here on out, contact your, your legislators, show up at town halls and other events, make a personal connection to the issue to make it real for them, partner with individuals and groups in, in other parts of the country, and be patient because this is going to take months. I would suggest following the old adage of it ain't over till it's over because this isn't going to be over for a really long time. And even if this year it doesn't work out quite the way you want, there's another budget next year. In Congress, nothing's ever really settled. Not ever. And that those steps are the right steps to take. And the other thing I would encourage you members to do is don't just focus on the presidency. The media loves the president because it's very easy to cover the executive branch. Congress is a lot harder, but in a lot of ways it's much more important. So focus on the full action because even after all this happens, there are still other things like the implementation process that the bureaucracy runs. And you can litigate. Lawyers like to sue people, right? Here's your chance. So sure, absolutely, all those things are really good. And not to be so caught up in the day-to-day -day that you lose the overall flow of where this is going to be patient with it not to expect a clear outcome all the time congress is a very messy institution because it's a very messy country and that's what it represents well this is great insight and uh useful advice and i, I really appreciate you coming by to talk with us professor kenneth cosgrove from suffolk university thanks for sharing your expertise and your experience with us thank you mike it's been great to be here so with all that information from Professor Cosgrove on the federal budget process, where does the appropriation for the Legal Services Corporation stand? Well, with Congress facing a deadline of September 30th, we are clearly a long way from any final determination about LSC's funding for the next fiscal year, 2018. Because Congress failed to adopt a budget for the current fiscal year, FY17, by last September 30th, the government is actually operating right now under a continuing resolution, which is set to expire on April 28th. That means appropriations are fixed for the moment at FY16 levels, or $385 million to LSC, of which about $5 million comes to Massachusetts. And it's possible that Congress will once again miss their annual deadline and instead fund government operations through another continuing resolution, thereby maintaining funding at the same level. Not an ideal outcome at a time when legal services providers around the country are chronically underfunded. Still, that would be preferable to defunding LSC entirely, as the White House has proposed. The bottom line is we need your help in protecting civil legal aid. 
please take the time to tell your senators and representative in D.C. just how important investing in civil legal aid is. Ask them to support funding for LSC at $450 million. And while you're at it, reach out to your state senator and representative and ask them to increase state spending to $23 million on the Massachusetts Legal Assistance Corporation, or MLAC, the leading source of funding for legal services in Massachusetts. I hope you found this Issue Spot podcast informative and empowering. Thanks for listening. Thank you.